Love Talk Radio. Good afternoon, listeners. Fairness Radio with Chuck Morse and Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan, Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m. Welcome to the program. I want to thank, of course, uh, Cyber Station USA Radio Network, our host here. Uh, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan, my co-host, is on assignment today, as they like to say in the radio business. And ably filling in for him, of course, is our regular economic correspondent, Dave Johnson from the Huffington Post. Dave, how are you? I'm great. Good to be here. Dave, we've got a really um, pretty aggressive and intense lineup of guests today. In the first hour, we have Linda Killian. She is the author of The Swing Vote, The Untapped Power of Independence. In the second hour, Edward Conard. He is the author of Unintended Consequences, Why Everything You've Been Told About the Economy is Wrong. He is a an executive with Bain Capital. I think he's a good friend of, um, pre- uh, of Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney. You almost uh, said President Romney. Almost. So let's not let's let's not get ahead of ourselves, Dave. Although I have to say, I'm getting a little excited over that prospect from the looks of things. I don't know if you watched in the polls, <laughs> but uh, Mitt is ahead. I don't know if you've seen this today, the Drudge Report. I've seen it. I've seen yeah. it. Yeah. And let's. And I, college, I'm not bringing though. this up to rub your nose in it, but today's Drudge Report. The latest poll, North Carolina has Romney 51 versus Obama well, I 43. I wouldn't go by the kind of polls the Drudge Report links to, but legitimately. Well, I'll tell you what poll they're linking to. It's TBS. All right. Well, <laughs> I mean, that one, oh, no, this yeah, is, there's some legitimate. No, this one's Rasmussen. This, this one's oh, well, Rasmussen. I mean, what's the point of even linking to a Rasmussen? But, but other polls, legitimate polls, show uh, that Romney's ahead but nowhere near in the Electoral College. Well, I mean, legitimate polls like CBS New York Times, which apparently shows right. Romney ahead by two with the, for the first time. And, you know, I thought it was kind of um, almost humorous that um, that someone in the um, Obama campaign staff said that the New York Times is biased. Did you hear that? I saw something about that. That's just silly <laughs> stuff in the background. That's just oh, silly boy. stuff in the background, but... You know, but, one of the yeah, interesting right. things. Of polls, yeah. polls are showing that. Polls are showing people are upset. You know that the uh, the recovery, uh, there was an analysis of income recovery, and mm-hmm. what happened was that 93% of all gains that have happened since the economy turned around have gone to the top 1%. 93% right. well, you know, of you know, anything I, that I turned around went to a top Dave, I don't know if people object to that. What they object to is the fact that the turnaround has been so tepid. Now, I'm not they saying that there object, hasn't it's been. It's not that they object to it. Well, it's, it's not that, that we're there supposed to be been. having a turnaround and nobody's feeling it. Except well, that's a few. because all the money's all going, going to the public people. sector. Anyway, the thing is that the, the turnaround has, you know, it, it's happening, but it's so lame. It's so unprecedentedly slow. And I think people are scratching their heads and wondering, um, you know, why why this isn't moving forward a little more vigorously. Um, and I think that we'll, we can ask that question of our author in the second hour, Edward Conard, who, of course, is an, an investment banker, and he probably has uh, some insight on that. Maybe we could learn something. Maybe. Well, we'll learn what he thinks. I don't know if we'll learn right. anything. Well, we'll see. <laughs> 
You know, one of the interesting uh, things about the uh, CBS New York Times poll is that it shows for the first time that Mitt Romney is ahead among women. Did you see that? No, I didn't see that. Yes, Mitt Romney is ahead ahead among women women by two. And this is the New York Times. This isn't some right-wing pollster. And Mm -hmm. that is not only amazing because he was way behind among women maybe two months ago, but it's also interesting because, generally speaking, since since I think probably since Roe versus Wade and since the 1960s, women have always done much better. Um, I mean, Democrats have always done much better with women voters than Republicans. So, that's right. Yeah, but that's, that's why right, this is so interesting. The fact that Romney is ahead among women. Everybody who's feeling pain in this economy is going to say, "I don't like what's going on." I mean, it's just natural. Mm-hmm. Well, I also wonder if this isn't perhaps, and again, this is, uh, I know I'm, I'm touching on a, on a hot button here, but I wonder if this might not be a reflection of the so-called war on women might have backfired for the Democrats. No, I, anyway, I don't Anyway, Dave, so. we're going we're gonna to, well, I mean, the polls seem to suggest it. We're going to take a brief break. Well, we're going to welcome in our, our um, affiliate stations. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Dave Johnson's here filling in uh, today, and we have a guest coming up at the quarter after the hour. Please stay tuned. Radio with Chuck and Patrick, Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Fairness Radio with Chuck. Thank you, Lars. That's, uh, of course, the dolce tones of Lars Christensen, our producer at Cyber Station USA Radio Network. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'd like to welcome aboard our affiliate stations, WWPRAM in uh, Bradenton, Florida, and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. Our online part is Blog Talk Radio, and of course our host station, Cyber Station USA Radio Network. Uh, and uh, filling in today for my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan, is Dave Johnson, regular correspondent, Huffington Post. Dave, how are you? I am good. How are you doing? Good, Dave. We have coming up shortly um, Linda Killian, the swing vote, the untapped power of independence. Dave, um, the uh, again, I mean, I will acknowledge right off the bat that I just got the book, so I haven't read it. But um, I wonder if uh, independents are going to play a factor this year. I think she gets accurately into an issue you and I probably agree on, which is that a lot of Americans are fed up with the uh, the polarized and highly politicized two parties and their inability to get together in any any sense and, and get things done. Um, the influence of lobbyists on Congress in particular, uh, the influence of special interests on Congress on both sides, and um, what to do about that, because it seems like congressmen, their their main focus is 
uh, on on schmoozing with uh, lobbyists and trying to just focus on getting reelected. What say you, Dave? I, I think most people now see this this huge problem that the Washington elite, I like to call them, simply have very little to do with what's going out on out in the country. They don't they don't care at all about what public opinion polls largely show, and they're just responding to certain very very uh, well funded interest groups. And everybody we, feels we that. Agree. We agree. We agree, Dave. Yeah. I guess that um, you know to talk about possible uh, solutions to this. One idea that always comes up, and I'm and I kind of am sort of mixed on it, is the idea of term limits. In other words, a U.S. senator should not be in there for more than 12 years. A U.S. congressman should not be in there maybe for more than 12. And right. um, and that, in a sense, it, it, gets, it, it removes the constant need to get reelected and raise money. And it also reduces the influence of special interests because if someone knows that they're not going to be there, they don't have to kowtow to special interests. They can focus on you know, the best interests of the country, not the best interests of these various special interest groups. What do you think? Well, I think uh, I think for one thing that, that term limits is saying to people that it doesn't matter who you want to represent you, they're not allowed to represent you. And I think that's just wrong. I think it undoes democracy. On the other hand, you, you we have a broken political system where uh, you simply can't get an incumbent out of office. So that's the problem. Yeah, I mean, you look, have ideally, to solve that. You know, in an ideal world, I agree with you that uh, we shouldn't limit someone because they're in office. We should be able to elect whoever we want. But, you know, there are certain practicalities, and I think one of them is that someone who's in office for a long period of time, whether they're liberal or conservative, Democrat or Republican, doesn't matter. They do tend to start to serve Washington. They start to serve. Uh, right. They get used to. They get. They they lose touch with with uh, the people in their district, and um, you know it's maybe this is just part of human nature. I mean, it's why we got rid of the king. You know, so maybe I, maybe it it does have to be done. Even though I don't like the idea philosophically. I I don't agree. They don't. A lot of them tend to. They don't all. And I think part that's another part of the broken political system, the money that is used to influence people there. If you're in Washington, you're in the middle of this huge trap that, that is designed to suck you in and make you unaware of what's going on back home. Right. Uh, so, well, I mean, I think that we're so talking I, about the idea of a term limit might reduce the influence of money because if someone knows that they're not going to run for re-election, they're not going to worry about money. They don't have to raise money for a re-election. They don't have to listen to moneyed interests as much. They can focus on the business of uh, of governing and of what's best for the country and for their state right. and district. I mean, it's just, a, right. again, I mean, these are, we're talking theoreticals here. But, uh, I mean, it seems to me that that's a good way of reducing the influence of money. Right. So you you th you think that term limits is a good way to reduce the influence of money i think what it does yes. then is it makes the professional staffers have too much influence well i mean the professional okay. staffers go out with their uh, congressperson no i mean you can't i well, know what no, you the mean professional I mean, there's staffers are still if if you're doing what you say the professional staffers are the ones who are the only ones who have 
the knowledge, the experience, the connections in D.C., and that's the crowd that's a real problem because no, well, those, they're a real that's problem the revolving now. door. Those are the people that go into lobbyist jobs, et cetera, and then come out of lobbyist jobs to work in the Congress, and there's almost no restrictions on that. And that's what the, the whole Jack Habermas thing, you know, you exactly. interviewed him. Yeah. The whole, yep. He said, I mean, look, if right. we let that's them know they might have a job with us later, we own them. So, yeah, so they, should, they goes... should be banned from that. I mean, I agree with you, Dave. Yep. And, but I think that also, if you have a turnover in Congress, congressmen bring in their own staffs. You don't have to have this kind of professional staff running well, things. And you're right. Those guys run everything. They're the ones who actually write the bills, and they put stuff in there. I mean, the interview with Jack Abramoff was very interesting. One of the things that Abramoff said was that uh, he gave an example of something that his lobbying firm actually put in a bill that um, by a congressman who didn't even know it was there hardly. I mean, and that little thing was this one little sentence that said, parentheses C5 yep. times square 2 equals page 2 equals C10. Nobody knew exactly. what the heck it meant. And, and the congressman didn't even pay any attention to it. Nobody read it. But what it meant was somewhere down the road, someone was either going to get a payoff or someone was going to get screwed. Well, so my, my idea of the solution to this subversion of democracy is not even less democracy or even less representative government by saying, if you so what if you like this representative and they're good for your district or whatever, you still can't vote that person after two terms or whatever. I don't like that at all. I think the solution... If you want to put a lot of energy into something, the solution is an informed electorate that's getting honest, objective information and that is not subject to this horrible influence of huge amounts of money. So that that's the answer. We're never going to well, get there. We're never going to get there, I, and term I, limits just makes it worse. I even think that if it's someone that you like in Congress, it's still they can't stay there forever. You know, it's supposed to be a citizen legislature. You know, I think it was Thomas Jefferson who expressed that best when he viewed he expressed that view that the, the citizen farmer would go in do public service for a set period of time and then go back to the farm. And you know, regardless of I mean, they can find other productive things to do to contribute. You know, it's just there's always people who can come in and add a new perspective, a new set of eyes. Somebody who's in there for 30 years, you know, they're, they're going to view things as someone who viewed stuff 30 years ago. I mean, the world changes. I mean, I just Once think that's something that we said for, you know, a new a new and fresh, you know, set of, set of thinking. The election yes. system only lets the ones who can raise large amounts of money in. So you're just going to get the next one who's a professional because they can raise large amounts of money. You've got to get the money out, and then regular people can run. Well, that's true, too, Dave, and that's a, that's there's a way we're kind of – Skirting around the edges of how to do that. I mean, I think term right. limits is only one idea. All right, we're going to go to a brief break. We'll be back with our first guest, Linda Killian, the author of The Swing Vote, The Untapped Power of Independence, and we shall return after this brief interregnum.
drums are driving me mad. Okay, we're back, Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Dave Johnson filling in today. Our guest this segment is Linda J. Killian. She's the author of The Swing Vote, The Untapped Power of Independence. Linda Killian is a Washington journalist and a senior scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. She's written for numerous, numerous national publications and has appeared on television as a political analyst. Linda, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thanks. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You know, I just started the book. It's very readable. I, I endorse it uh, very heartily. Oh, um, thanks so much. You know, you have a great deal of um, insider knowledge on the goings-on in Washington, and I think you express the frustration of most Americans when they see this paralysis in Congress and in and, and the ability of the president to get anything through Congress. Um you, you accurately, uh, I think, identify parts of this problem, particularly the issue of um, lobbying and, and the focus of congressmen to get reelected, and um, and the sort of the game that they're busy playing versus uh, doing the business of uh, the people in the country. Uh, what do you what do you propose um, in, in terms of some concrete suggestions with regard to how to break this deadlock? Well, thanks for the question. I talk in the swing vote about some very specific uh, sort of prescriptions. And they're, they're not big, giant prescriptions. For example, we've seen this week with Americans Elect, which was, you know, that the effort uh, that – and they had millions of dollars behind them, $35 million, to get on the ballot in all 50 states and run an independent candidate – and they've had some trouble, and they weren't able to attract an A-list candidate, and um, they haven't attracted a lot of people to their process, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. But the point of that is that I think independent voters are divided on the issue of whether we or not we need an actual third party. And I don't, in the book, The Swing Vote, call for a third party because I think that's a big, maybe that will happen down the road, um, but that is a big reform, and that is, no. a, is a big hurdle. And when you think about the two parties being in existence for more than 150 years, mm -hmm. uh, Democratic Party even longer than that, yep. uh, it's it's you know, you're not going to have a third party overnight. But what you can do is make reforms to the system. And this is what I talk about. I talk about, for example, the, one, the first one that I feel very strongly about are open primaries. I think mm -hmm. all primaries all over the country should be open to all registered voters. They pay for them with their tax dollars, and it's fundamentally undemocratic, I think, to bar them from participating in the primaries. You know, so Linda, the uh, problem I have with that is that, um, you know, in spite of all of their, um, you know, problems, the two major parties, I think, ought to have a means in which they choose their nominees for uh, office, whether it be president or governor or, or Congress. And uh, to have an open primary, which means that, uh, Democrats and independents can vote in a Republican primary and vice versa. It just doesn't seem to to actually be efficacious. And I'll give you two examples. 
in the Republican primaries in Michigan and in Ohio, but more in Michigan, which are open primaries, you had Democrats switching over and voting in the Republican primary so they can vote against Mitt Romney. Now, that's not fair. Uh, the Republicans yes, but, ought to be able to choose their own uh, candidate, whether we like it or not, no? Well, yes, but I think this – people, whenever I talk about open primaries, people always bring up this idea of mischief and, yep. you know, voter fraud and this kind of thing. Well, not even voter fraud. That's if you're not really a registered voter. But right. they bring up these issues, and it really is so small in terms of the percentage of voters. And it really is not very significant. And I think what's more important is that the 40%, it's now more than either Republicans or Democrats. More people are registered as independents than either Republicans or Democrats. So it's not allowing them to participate. Now, I understand they've willingly left the two parties. They've willingly decided not to register, but they're so disgusted with what's going on. And I think you can – you can. Um, I'm out of breath because I just ran up the stairs. Okay. <laughs> you know, Linda, um, let, me, let me toss out a suggestion also, something that occurs to me on this issue. And I think that you might have some insight on in this. I think that some time ago, maybe it was a couple of decades ago, the Democrat and Republican bigwigs got together, probably I see them in some smoke-filled room, and they had a meeting where they rigged the system in such a way that they would shut out third parties. In other words, they, they created primaries that would not would make it extremely difficult for third parties to get in the primary and get on the ballot. They made it virtually impossible for third-party candidates to get into the debates on the national level. In other words, the Democrats and Republicans colluded to form a monopoly on the uh, on the primary process and on the selection process. So it seems to me that the, the way to go about this isn't to let independents be independent and then vote in the two parties. It's to create a, a situation on the state level where third parties can get more easy access and can actually come in because they do have something to say. I mean, they've got political viewpoints that aren't being heard necessarily. Well, yes, that's absolutely right, and that's another reform that I would definitely applaud. Every state, there are 50 states, every state has its own election laws. It's not right. uniform. And so it, there's no easy way to talk about this because every state is different. In the book, in the swing vote, I looked at four states, and one of them New Hampshire, Ohio, Virginia, and Colorado, which are all really key swing states this year. Yes. Mm -hmm. In Colorado, yeah. I talked about a woman who was in the state legislature, and she was a Democrat in the state legislature. And she was more fiscally conservative, and she decided to become an independent. She had been in the legislature for several terms and had won her last re-election by a pretty big margin. She decided to become an independent and run for re-election, well, run for election to the, the legislature as an independent. In Colorado, just as one example, if you do that, you have to do it 16 months before the election, Oh yes. which mm -hmm. is an incredible hurdle. Independent yep. candidates are not permitted to raise as much money. They're, the limits are lower for independent candidates. So there's a variety of hurdles.
to independent candidates. She finally wound up running as a write-in candidate, and the Democratic Party spent a lot of money to defeat her. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of hurdles. Another thing that is a hurdle to, to challengers uh, is congressional districting, the way yeah. the congressional districting process is done. Again, just like election law, election law, you know, either a Republican or Democrat is in control as the Secretary of State and is enforcing it. It's written by state legislatures, which are filled with Republicans and Democrats. They have a lock on the system, and they want to keep a lock on the system. You would think that with 40% of the people disaffiliating, the parties would get the message. But they're concerned, and so what they do is just tighten their stranglehold on the system. So in redistricting reform, you have governors and state legislatures that usually do it in back rooms. They cut deals to do districts that are not competitive, that um, are safe seats for incumbents. Mm -hmm. And the public rarely even gets to testify. In Virginia, when they did redistricting reform, there was a public commission that made a proposal, and the legislature laughed at it when it was proposed. Um, now, in California, you have two uh, ballot initiatives that were passed to deal with both of these issues. One is they had a redistricting commission, it was one-third independents, one-third Republicans, one-third Democrats, and they have created some very competitive districts in California. We have some incumbents pitted against incumbents, and there are more – they're not necessarily safe Democratic or Republican seats. The point was to make them more competitive and more appealing for challengers to try to run in. They also adopted a top-two system in which – the top two vote-getters for every office will move on to the general election. Um, I have mixed feelings about that in terms of it opens up the primary to all voters. All registered voters can vote in the primaries, and they pick a candidate for whatever the office is. The top two vote-getters go on to the general. But in a big, expensive state like California, I do have some concern that when you move beyond local races or maybe state legislature, you, you will need so much money to compete in a top-two system. At right. least the way it is now, independent, libertarian, reform party, green party candidates can collect a fairly modest number of signatures and qualify for the ballot. That doesn't mean you know, they I, really I, I, have a shot of getting elected, but at least they can be on well, the ballot. Well, they get to be heard, and they get to get their viewpoint across. And I just want to say before I, I introduce Dave that um, surprisingly here in Massachusetts, they actually had an independent commission that did draw redraw districting lines because we lost a congressman this year. And mm -hmm. it is surprisingly good. I mean, in, in a sense, mm -hmm. the Democratic Party has controlled the state for almost a half a century. It's almost like what they call in Ireland a rotten borough. And now it looks like we have three competitive races where it looks like Republicans may come in and Bonnie Frank had to retire. So, you know, it's a great idea. Let me introduce Dave Johnson. Dave, um, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, thanks, uh, Ms. Killian. Uh, your book is, is – the swing voter, and uh, let, me, let me ask yeah. the swing vote. 
And let me ask a question. Does swing vote implies almost that there's a block of voters who will swing? Uh, and the reviews tend to talk about them as being in the center, which kind of sets up this mental image that somehow they have these positions that are between the two parties. And and then you see this reflected in a lot of thinking. I think it, that that forms people's thinking. You see this reflected in a lot of the way candidates try to approach issues and try to kind of not be too far to the right and not be too far to the left. But what, what I've seen is something very different. Uh, and I think Pew did a study of this not too long ago, and they found out that what we have been thinking of as a somehow some kind of block in the center that will swing one way or the other, that, that has this mental image set up as if they're some kind of single entity and that it can swing, what they found out was that actually what they see happening is that people get disaffected with their parties because the parties don't represent them because they do this centrist thinking. And so we see an awful lot of people on the right that want the Republican Party to be even more to the right, so they stop signing themselves up as Republicans. And especially on the other side, on the Democratic side, they found uh, disaffected are 21% of registered voters and lean toward Republicans. Uh, Postmoderns are 14% and lean towards Democrats. Now, what I think happened was Karl Rove figured this out, and that's why he did the strategy of having them play to the base, and that if they just move ever rightward, they found out that more and more voters would show up finally that had given up because they didn't think the Republicans were to the right enough, and that the Democrats keep moving to the right to try to catch this thing that's called a center. And what happens then is that more and more of the people who would vote Democrat get disgusted and stop voting and stop registering as Democrats. I'm just wondering, what do you think of that? Yeah, I guess you're on the left, right? Is that right? You're, you're, I can, can Me? Sort of yeah, but I, I, would say a libertarian, so, I would say a so, libertarian type would, would say something similar. All right. And that, uh, and that Karl Rove agreed. So what I would say to that is a majority of Americans are in the center. There's no question in any of the polling that a majority of Americans are in the center. That includes independents, it includes Democrats, and it includes Republicans. Now, what, as opposed to those who consider themselves either conservative or progressive liberal, the center outnumbers them. But it's true that independents are a mixture of things. They aren't all the same, and I talk about this in the book. They, people who call themselves independents might be libertarian. They might be far-left progressives. They might be people that are in the center. They're a mixture. They're independent by definition. So they're not a monolithic block for sure. But a majority of what we would call independents, and, about, and this is another issue that has come up, about half of the 40% of registered voters who are independents are, do naturally align with either the Republican or Democratic Party. They've just chosen to disaffiliate, and they typically vote reliably with the Republicans or Democrats. But the other half, which is about 20% of all registered voters, almost a quarter, are more nuanced in terms of what they think. And they don't, you can't, 
defining them as being in the center is a little overly simplistic because what they have is usually a mixture of views. They agree with the Republicans on some things, and this is also according to a Pew study, on things like the deficit and spending, and they agree with the Democrats on things like social issues. Uh, They tend to be more libertarian when it comes to issues like gay marriage and abortion. They don't really feel the government has a role in that. Um, So it's nuanced. They just, there are a variety of reasons for why people choose to be independents. Sometimes they just don't want to get calls at dinner time from pollsters and from parties uh, and, and others. It's a reflection of their dissatisfaction with uh, the two parties. I wouldn't, you know, I certainly wouldn't characterize what the Democrats have done and what Obama has done as moving right. Um, I would characterize it. But I do think there's a fair point in terms of there are some big things that haven't gotten addressed. And I think voters in both parties and certainly voters in the center, independent voters, are disgusted with the the partisanship and the polarization in Washington, the inability to deal with the deficit and the debt and spending, which has resulted in some bad choices. Um, I guess it could look like Obama and the Democrats have moved to the center, center right because they haven't dealt with taxes and tax reform and dealing with the Bush tax cuts. I don't think that's a philosophical uh, stand. I think it's more of kind of a gutless stand in terms of, you know, they don't want to raise taxes and they're scared of the of the uh, reaction. Whereas the Republicans, it's all about low taxes, low taxes, let's cut domestic spending. Well, you can't, it has to be a mixture. You know, the Simpson-Bowles plan, and yesterday there was a big, the Peterson Institute had a huge summit on the deficit and debt here in Washington. And it has to be a mixture. And that, there again, I think is what independent voters would say, that they support some tax reform that would raise some tax rates on the wealthiest people. They would support some domestic spending cuts but not draconian cuts. And they would support some entitlement reform. And the only way to do this is a mixture of ideas where everybody feels some pain. You left you know, out that, that military does, that spending, does, which, which doubled under Which Bush. doubled under Obama, but the Obama has increased military spending every year. But the point is that uh, you're, you're touching upon the issue, Linda, very well, that uh, of what, what uh, I think independents and people in the center are concerned about, that it has become so polarized on both sides. Nobody wants to see these huge cuts with these huge changes and kind of this Ayn Rand libertarian approach on the right, but at the same time they don't want to just stick their head in the sand either and pretend that a $16 trillion debt and a $1.6 trillion deficit is is not going to mean anything. So, you know, I guess the question comes down to uh, what can be done to break the logjam? What can be done to break the logjam? Well, well, on that note, I'm going to let you think about that for a second because we're going to go to a brief break. Okay. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll be right back shortly. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, Dave Johnson filling in today. Um, Our guest is Linda Killian. The Swing Vote is the book, The Untapped Powers of Independence. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. 
provided common sense information with regard to slight changes in your diet that can lead to improvements in your health. Uh, I urge you to check out particularly the issue of acid reflux, which I, uh, has helped me and Patrick a lot. Uh, just basically, he recommends uh, certain foods you could buy in a grocery store, not exotic Chinese herbs or health foods, but just regular foods that you can have to deal with various health problems. Check out their website on uh, Fairness Radio and put in the code FAIRNESS, and you will get half off the cost of his excellent books. Our guest this segment, Linda Killian, The, un- uh, the Swing Vote, The Untapped Power of Independence. Linda, so how do we break this logjam? Well, that's a good question, and that's the question in terms of people are mad, people are frustrated. Are they mad and frustrated enough to to take action? The first step, of course, is voting. Of course, everybody's got to vote. You can't just be mad and frustrated and stay home. Even if you write someone's name in, even if you vote for a third-party candidate that you think has no chance, it makes a statement. But there are more active things that you can do. Uh, We talked about pushing for redistricting reform and pushing for open primaries. In states that have ballot initiatives, the public can push for this. Insist that public officials make more information available on the web about what they are doing. Press for campaign finance reform changes. Now, this is a big, complicated issue. In the wake of Citizens United, it may only be possible to deal with this with the constitutional amendment. But there is nobody who doesn't think that money has a huge influence on politics. Uh, And Pew surveys have shown that more than 60% of all the voters who register independent say one of the biggest reasons they do that is because they think the public – both parties care more about special interests than about average Americans. So you know we've got a problem when so many people feel that way. So one thing I say is make small contributions. Make small that you can afford under $100 to candidates that you think are doing the right thing, to candidates that you think are working together and trying to solve problems. Because when you think about it, if 40% of all the voters are independents, and if they all made a $50 contribution to a candidate, that's a huge number. So even small contributions, having some skin in the game, can make a difference. Mm. Um, Show up at public meetings. Testify, call, write your elected officials. Let them know how you feel. Obviously, in the age of the Internet, you can have a blog, you can tweet, um, you can be on Facebook, and you can be spreading. You can have a, a, a radio show, and you can be spreading the word about these issues, about citizen engagement, about political leaders being more responsive. Um, so support candidates and officials who offer solutions and are willing to work with all sides on problems. Oppose those who are only interested in furthering partisan warfare and political advantage. And then, you know, there are groups, and, you know, some people don't know how effective they've been so far, but there are groups like No Labels, The Coffee Party, IndependentVoting.org, or start a group in your own neighborhood. You know, start a a local group, you know, to to work on some problems, whether it's a stop sign or, you know, whatever it is that you think needs to be done in your community. 
I think that's what the Tea Party was all about also. And also, by the way, Occupy Wall Street, too. Dave? Yep. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that your prescription is really good. I, I have found that when anybody just shows up for the first time at anything, they start getting involved, and that's just a wonderful thing. I'm in California, and we have the uh, redistricting reform, and I think it's going to turn out really good. It's ironic that we only have it because a zillionaire funded a campaign to get it, and he thought it was going to lead to conservatives taking over everything, and it turned out the opposite. But it's so promising to see that we're going to have competitive districts that actually make some sense. You know, the, the person across the street from you isn't in another district, and it's not changing all the time. The other thing, though, we got was open primaries. Mm-hmm. And in California, that's just a prescription for whoever has the most money, which means the two corporate-backed candidates are going to be statewide elections. And those are the two that are what doesn't matter what party they're in. That's who's going to become the statewide candidates. Yeah, it's a great thing locally. Statewide in a, California, in a state like California where it takes so much money to campaign, yep. all it does is shut out everybody else that doesn't have a lot of money and the ones that are going to have a lot of money are going to be the corporate-backed candidates. So I, I disagree on that. Uh, and as, as you know, I disagree that there's this idea that there's this center that's somehow between. I think what we're dealing with is is a lot of low-information voters, and I don't know how to solve that. So, But I, I sorry that I didn't get the book in time to really review it. I really want to read it. It's The Swing Voter, right? The Swing Vote. Swing vote. The Untapped the Power of Independence. Yep, that's the name mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. So, and you can, this is maybe a good opportunity for me to mention my website, which has Please. tons of information about the book, about, you know, I write for The Atlantic, I write for uh, Politico, I write for, I have a piece coming out in the Washington Post this Sunday on five myths about independent voters, which touches on a lot of these issues. So you can my all my television and radio. This will be posted on it. So the website is www.lindajkillian.com. So that's my Linda, website. Thank you very much. And it's a good website. A lot of information. A lot of links there. Um, the book again is. It's also is my the, Twitter name, Linda J. Killian. So people can okay, follow yes. me on Twitter too. And I see you have the uh, all the social networking modalities there too. So. Yep. The swing, the swing vote, the untapped power of independence. Linda Killian's our guest. Linda, I want to thank you for joining us this afternoon. Well, it's been really great. It's been good to talk with you, and it's nice to see both coasts represented, California and Massachusetts. Yep. So, yep, you bet. Uh, good in both politi- ends of the political spectrum, I guess. So sure. good to talk with you guys. Thanks so much, Linda. Okay. All right, take we're care. Go to, we're gonna, thank you. We're going to go to another brief break. We'll be back uh, with a, a quick open line segment. You're listening to Fairness uh, Radio with uh, Chuck and Patrick, Dave Johnson filling in. We shall return shortly.
phone. Dave? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Dave, I'm sorry. My question to you, who was the corporate sponsor for Jerry Brown, Governor Jerry Brown? I don't know that there was one. I don't know. I didn't hear it. Well, Somehow you, just, I was, you no. just said that in order to run in California, you need a corporate sponsor to get up there. I mean, Jerry oh, Brown is the governor. The, we're about to have the first election under the new rules. We haven't had one yet. I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if you're following this, but today, I mean, I don't know who was behind the big initiative in California to um, have a, a commission to redistrict, but um, the Drudge Report today says that uh, George Soros is having a meeting in Washington with huge contributors, and they're trying to strategize well, where they're going to put their money this year. Well, hold on, Chuck, if I can cut in real quick, gentlemen. Sure. Uh, I just want to mention that this is Fairness Radio with Chuck Morris and Dr. Patrick O'Hafferian. And our guest host today is Mr. Dave Johnson. You're listening to Fairness Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyberstation USA Radio Network, and our radio affiliates. Take it away. Thank Jeff. you, Lars. You know, I don't do that enough, and I appreciate that. Um, but uh, so there we are. Uh, Dave, we have also uh, Edward Connard coming up, the author of Unintended Consequences, speaking of big corporate figures. Um, That's we'll right. Be able to- We'll be able to hear it right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I'm going to ask him, what do you do when you have more than $10 million? What, what do you gain by having well, what do you? Well, what would you, what, what's the alternative? You want them to uh, put it, send it out in the form of welfare checks? I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if he's, uh, he's particular. Who knows? It's kind of a personal question, I guess. I mean, who knows what, what he's motivated by? I mean, he's, it's obviously a reflection of his success. I mean, what does George Soros do with it? Apparently, he gets meetings in Washington where they figure out who to give big, big, big money to. I guess. Right. Well, uh, you call it success. I, I'm not sure success is how one gets a lot of money necessarily, unless you just Neither define success. I guess there's the successful sperm club when you inherit it, but. But I, well, we don't. I don't think that's the case here. He seems like a pretty well-earned guy, but, and I'm not saying yeah. that is. A, that's that's not necessarily a measure of success. I mean, you can have success. A successful person can be a monk, you know, and, it's, and take it's a bottle of profit. Of finding a strategy to make a lot of money, but we'll talk about that in the next hour. Hey, there's something I want to bring just up. A, if I can. Wait a minute, it's just to briefly say, you know, even that's simplistic. I mean, it just could be a byproduct of. Um, of whatever he did in life, and that uh, that was what the market bared. But anyways, what did you want to bring up, Dave? Well, I have a, a story in Alternet today that breaks some news, so I thought I'd bring it up. Uh, Please. It's about, uh, it's about a bank that was very successful and a couple that successfully made all their payments right on time and used cashier's checks to pay for their mortgage, and then it ended up with the uh, bank taking their house. And now, was this one Sunday, of those robo-signature situations? It's along the lines of some of that, yeah, where they're not paying enough attention. It wasn't from robo-signatures, although mm. the bank presented some stuff that was said to be their signatures when it wasn't. But, mm. no, what happened with this one was the uh, man of the couple shot himself on Sunday, mm-hmm. and they wanted to go ahead with the eviction on Tuesday anyway. So... I well, why were they? What's to, the details? What was? Why were they evicting? Well, them? the story is at Alternet, which is Alternet A L T E R N E T dot O R G Alternet dot org, and it's the top story. It's titled "Wells Fargo Has Blood on Its Hands." 
Desperate Man Commits Suicide After Shocking Foreclosure Mistreatment. The basis of the story, the basic story is that they were paying with a cashier's check every month, Mm -hmm. and then the bank misapplied the funds from the cashier's check and said they hadn't paid. And then there was a year after year of runaround that led to the bank taking their house. So, you know, I'm with you on this one. It's, it's kind of an example of how the big, big banks, as opposed to the community banks, everything exactly. has become so automated that if you, you know, you miss, you know, something or something and a mistake, and apparently this is the bank's fault, you know, it, it, it really goes, it goes to hell. And um, it's yeah. a terrible tragedy. It reminds me not to bring up a historic example, but it reminds me of the Whitewater scandal where um, the Clintons, along with their banking partner, McDougal at, at Madison Guarantee, set up these mortgages at the Whitewater Complex, mainly for elderly people, where if they were one or two days late in their payment, they would immediately have a foreclosure, and then they'd flip the property. And it was they didn't do anything, of course, illegal, but it was obviously highly unethical. I think that's, of course, well, an extreme example. had nothing example. to do with that. The Clintons had yes, nothing they did. to do with that. They were partners and with the Google. Of the no, 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 wait a, wait a minute, they had to do with No, that. the investigation found that they – wait a minute. All the investigation that they did was put some money into it, any, and then this – No, they, they had everything to do with it. Into it. And then this the, guy took off and did all this stuff. No, no, no. The, the investigators simply found – they had everything to do with it. The investigators simply found that they hadn't done anything illegal, which they hadn't. They – it, it was, was the typical largest of, investigation by the government. Yeah, and they found that they hadn't that done point, anything and illegal. And they found right? that Clinton did nothing wrong. Illegal. He did not. That's right. But they, but it wrong. was typical. I know that they the wrong was concluded not, they concluded that all the Clintons they had done did nothing was put illegal some money did. into this investment. No, they that's had not nothing what they to concluded. do with how the you're, investment you're, was managed. No, you're quite wrong. And we went through this for ten years, and they found no. What nothing. they found was that they had done nothing illegal. They they had done a lot of things. Unethical, all they did was put some money into an investment. They had done, this is no, like they did more than all. This is like no, no, no. They were they they had a personal partnership with the McDougals, and they they set it up in this way. They did nothing illegal, is what they found, Dave. You can they revisit this. They did nothing. This. They didn't manage just like, the loans. Just like they didn't it probably Wells Fargo had done nothing technically illegal, but what they did do was something that was highly unethical. And I only bring this up because it's an example of what banks can do when they try to set things up legally. And the Clintons always it's were step ahead of the law. They never did I anything deposited. illegal. It's as if you're saying if I deposited money at Wells Fargo, I'm responsible for no, what Wells not, Fargo they, does. They were that's partners. No, extent, that's not what happened. The only extent all. of what the Clintons did that's, is they, they invested they, You don't know money. anything about this. That's nonsense. They were partners in the scheme. I followed this closely for years, so did very I. closely. So did I. You've, we should have – there's an author of a book about this. His name is Casey right now. If you want to go back there. They were active partners in this scheme, and what the investigation found was that they had done, quote, nothing illegal, especially since so the, uh, Google Bill didn't Clinton testify. So governor of Arkansas is busy running a bank development thing. He right. wasn't running it, but he entered into a, a scheme where they said, hey, you can make a lot of money here. Just put, come on on, and, and they, they entered into this knowingly. He lost but they money. had done nothing illegal, Dave. You're right. They found nothing money. technically illegal. But he also didn't he have didn't anything to do money. with any of the decisions the bank made at yes, all. Yes, he did. None. Yes, he did. 
And he the was problem busy. is that he was governor those, of Arkansas. Yeah, and he was also Hillary was busy being on the board of directors of all these corporations and getting a big fat Walmart. check for it too. Walmart, Walmart and a bunch of other ones. No, there's a whole group of them. No, they made money, and it was not illegal. The point, the reason I'm bringing this up, Dave, is not to go back in history and revisit that terrible. Oh and no, not to go back theme. in history. No, no, not at all. My reason oh, to no. bring it up is it's an of example of not. what banks and foreclosure people can do to screw people out of their forecl- out of their mortgages. It's well, a classic example of that. But yet, operating under the color of the law, they were people. Right. These and banks the are able to screw people. Has almost no recourse you know, in, in these yeah. cases. And I agree with that. Gentlemen, I'm going to need to hold the conversation right there because we need to cut to a real quick break. break. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. When we come back, hour number two will be with us. Thank you, Lars.
You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck Morris and Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan here on the CyberStation USA Radio Network and our affiliate stations as well. Our special guest host this segment and this hour is Mr. Dave Johnson. Chuck, take it away. Thank you, Lars. And, of course, yes, this is CyberStation USA Radio Network, Fairness Radio. We've got Edward Conard coming up. Book is Unintended Consequences: Why Everything You've Been Told About the Economy Is Wrong, according to uh, Mr. Kennard. We'll have a chance to talk to him. He's a former executive with Bain Capital. Dave, uh, Dave Johnson, of course, is with me. Dave, how are you? I am good. Ready to argue. Well, that's what we do here, Dave. We're talking yeah. about unethical practices by banks and by people who are involved in the banking business. Um, the uh, and and you bring up this terrible tragic story of a man committing suicide because his bank was so out of touch with him as a person and so automated and I can appreciate that those things can are, are awful. Uh, I I and, think and that it's, it's much very better. important and the, to understand in, in this story they did nothing wrong they made no they payments. didn't they still lost absolutely their absolutely I mean I suppose that one one lesson and not that I'm advocating it is to try to do banking locally with your local savings banks. If you if you can join a cooperative bank through your employer, that's good. I know I am in a cooperative bank. Um, that, uh, yeah, they, you bet. That's right, a credit union. They're much better. They, they tend to do banking the way we think banking actually is done in this country, which is that they accept deposits and they loan out money based upon the amount of money they have rather than uh, fractional reserve banking, which is what's the problem at, at J.P. Morgan. And they pay attention. They pay attention right. and they find out if they ought to be loaning you the money and things like that. As compared to the current scandal we're hearing about with J.P. Morgan Chase, where right. they lost just suddenly lost $2 billion, and we think it's only $2 billion, but it was on a $100 billion bet. So they only had to lose 2% to lose $2 billion. And the key to that is this was money of their depositors. They were gambling with their depositors' money, and if they lost all that money, the federal government has to come up with it, not them. That's right, because it's the FDIC. Although the FDIC only covers up to $100,000, of course, which is – I mean, I can't imagine generally as a rule – I mean, not that I'd ever have that much money in my life, which I don't – but uh, keeping that single sum of money in a bank account is probably not a great idea or, or more than that, generally. Um, it's, it's a good idea if you, if you are of means, which I'm certainly not, to sort of uh, spread out, put it in different silos, so to speak. Dave, are you following the MERS scandal? Yes, I am. That's where they set up this electronic – this is the whole basis of the robocall – I'm sorry, exactly. robo-signing thing – they set up this whole computerized system to register mortgages so that they could avoid registering them with counties and thereby paying the fees they were supposed to pay. And so they could also just shuffle lots and lots and lots of mortgages into this system they developed. Yeah, and I'm very familiar exactly. with it. Exactly. I mean, this is, this is a company that's involved with all of this automization of the whole mortgage process. Yep. And uh, it's taken, you're right, I mean, it's taken it away from counties and communities and it's put it all into a computer. And this organization, which is huge, is almost solely responsible for these robo-signing 
uh, frauds. I mean, not right. that they were deliberate frauds, but they were certainly uh, problems with um, you know computers and, well, and and not knowing who people are. Now, are you are you was, familiar with the connection between MERS and Attorney General Eric Holder? No, I'm not. But what happened with MERS was that they, in order to save money when the foreclosures happened. Rather than have people go over all the documentation, make sure everything was there, you know, that could be mm -hmm. a little bit expensive. They hired these firms that that were told to process, what, 30 of them an hour and stuff right. like that. And so the, these firms would just lie. They would sign an affidavit that said they had the paperwork. They would sign in other people's names on the forms and all of that and then send the foreclosure to a court. And for a long time, the courts were thinking everything had been done properly and were just processing these foreclosures. That's right. That, I mean, you said it correctly. I'm going to get into, when we come back from our brief break here, some of the uh, issues around why nothing's been done here with MERS. Okay, we'll take a brief break, and then we'll welcome in our affiliate stations. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Please stay tuned. Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the Cyberstation USA Radio Network and our affiliate stations as well. Chuck, take it away. Thank you, Lars, and I'd like to welcome aboard our affiliate stations, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon, our online partners, Blog Talk Radio, and of course our host station, Cyberstation USA Radio Network. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, Dave Johnson filling in today. I also want to mention our sponsor for this hour, that being Barton Publishing. Barton Publishing, uh, if you want to get information, I suggest you go to our website, fairnessradio.com. Click on the ad for Barton Publishing, and you'll see all of their various uh, products, their various informational booklets on all sorts of health issues. Uh, put in the code if you're going to order any of those. Put in the word fairness and you get 50% off. And uh, these are things like, um, for example, both Patrick and I have ordered the book on acid reflux because it's a problem for both of us, and it recommends healthy things to do to help reduce and even eliminate acid reflux without the use of expensive and possibly expensive drugs that could have bad side effects, and they do, by the way. Um, and I just will mention one thing that I learned, and that is an apple, a good old-fashioned apple a day that you get from the grocery store reduces acid reflux really by probably 80%. And there's some other interesting suggestions there. So this is really good stuff. I urge people check this out. It's Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com. Uh, let me welcome aboard uh, Dave Johnson. Dave, how are you? I'm good, and I'm here ready to argue. Okay, let me just, before we get into our, uh, we're going to have Edward Conard come up. I want to briefly... Uh, explain my um, the issue of, of of MERS, which is the company that does the robo signings. And my information that, from this, by the way, came from a source that I know you respect. That being the the radio program Ring of Fire. 
Yep, which I know mm-hmm. you listen to, Dave. Um, mm-hmm. And they they told they talked about this. They had a mortgage expert on who talked about it very reluctantly. But the bottom line is that Eric Holder, before he became Attorney General, he was a partner in a big New York white shoe law firm that represented MERS and that defended MERS around the country from various lawsuits that were emanating from various states and did so quite effectively. Um, now, Eric Holder was not was absolutely a part of that. He was a partner. He was not just a lawyer. He appointed people to to defend MERS. Then when he became Attorney General, for three years he did absolutely nothing as these robo-signings continued. He helped basically keep it quiet until there was such a public outrage, particularly after 60 Minutes did a program on this, that he finally had to step up and respond to it. So what did he do? He appointed several investigators to look into MERS, and guess who those investigators were? Those investigators were lawyers at that same law firm that represented uh, that he worked with that represented MERS, and then he told the FBI that they should look into it, but only in partnership with that very same law firm. So it looks to me like uh, kind of I mean I would describe that as as having at least the appearance of a cover up, and I think oh, well, that it explains a lot with regard to why um, nothing's been done. Now, again, my information on this is not some right-wing rag. My information on this is Ring of Fire, which is a left-wing program. What say you, Dave? So, well, the MERS is one part of a lot of banking fraud and stuff that was going on and is going on, and which uh, the lead-up to this was a story I have in Alternet today, which is about Wells Fargo, hounding a couple out of their house, and the husband shot himself this Sunday. Uh, If Holder was involved in any decisions on MERS or any of the people from that law firm, they should have recused themselves from any discussions of that because it's clearly a conflict of interest. Yeah, but they didn't. We We don't, wait, we don't know inside of the Justice Department if they did, if they did not. But what we do know is that when the savings and loan crisis hit in, uh, I think it was 1990 or something, the government had over a 1,000 investigators assigned. They prosecuted over a 1,000 cases and had a 90% conviction rate. They sent over a 1,000 people to jail for things right. like bank fraud and other things. When Enron happened, okay, just one company, they had over 100 investigators looking at that. And they prosecuted people, and a lot of things happened. And now we've had the largest collapse since the Great Depression. There are signs everywhere of all kinds of fraud going on from the top to the bottom. And And nothing has been done for three years. And that's exactly my point. They put together this uh, unit to investigate. Okay, just a few months ago they put together a unit to investigate – 50 investigators, but they haven't been hired yet. So Well, they're made up of lawyers who work for Holder's firm. Look, Dave, my point is that nothing so, well, has that been was done. Just, no, that's just on one of the things. Something Yeah, but, but Dave, why has nothing been Why has this that? administration and this attorney general, and MERS, by the way, is, a, is the big player in these robo-signings. They're a national company. It's a huge right. 
multi-million right. dollar company. This is not yeah, some little fly-by-night. Yeah, together. Yeah, yeah right. it's not some fly-by-night crook. I mean, these are big national, oh, yes, a big national is. group. Excuse <laughs> me? Oh, yes. Well, they is. may be, they may be crooks, but they're not, they're not fly-by-nighters who are meeting somebody okay. in an alley. I mean, they're guys who have, are well-heeled and they're connected to Eric Holder. And nothing has happened in three years, and he was a partner in the firm. Doesn't that smell to you? I mean, doesn't that well, have we, a kind of an appearance of impropriety? It does. What we, we know is that know nothing is. Well, no, happening. no, no. What we, we know, know is that if, in the three years since he's been Attorney General, nothing has happened, and there's been a public outcry. And now it looks, yeah, and now it looks like there's sort of a <clears throat> half-hearted investigation by people who were involved in it. That we well, do no, know. On the, wait, Chuck. No, on the Mears thing, there was a big government settlement. And the big government settlement uh, got a bunch of money from the banks, but get this, they get it, you think from the banks, okay, well, the banks are paying. Mm -hmm. No, the bank's shareholders, their current shareholders pay that, not the people who did it, not the people who got rich. Well, that's another story, Dave. We're talking about the the bank settlement. And guess guess what the money's being used for? The money's being no. That was Mears is only part of that. Some the money's of the being states used aren't by even states. using it to help homeowners. No, right. they're using it. They're using it to pad their own uh, budgets. I mean, that's that's the a Massachusetts story. Of this scandal is beyond just Mears. It's bigger. It's huge. Sure. And it's undermining public confidence in everything. You know. And don't forget, yeah. it was Obama. The the bailout happened under Bush. The bailout was the Bush people coming up with this plan. But then under Obama, well, it was bipartisan. they let these and bankers. We'll, we'll talk about that with our guests coming up. But uh, but the problem bankers. now is that nothing's been done since. I mean, it's it's continued with well, bailouts. Well, right under Obama, I'm waiting to see if they bail out J.C. Morgan. They let those bankers use that bailout money to pay themselves huge bonuses. Remember that? Yes, I so do. So the outrage here is so far beyond just this scandal, but. Yes. I'm, I'm totally agreeing with you. I'm just saying it's a whole lot bigger right. than that. And nobody knows why, except that obviously these banks have huge money well, and I think, huge influence. I think, Dave, we're going to go to a break, but I think we give a little glimpse into why when you take a look at some of the <clears throat> rather inappropriate relationships between people like our attorney general and some of these banking institutions. Anyways, we're going to go to a brief break. We'll be back uh, with Edward Kennard, the author of Unintended Consequences, Why Everything You've Been Told About the Economy is Wrong. And um, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Lars? 
Okay, we're on a break right now for our affiliates.
Patrick, you're on Cyber Station USA Radio Network and our affiliate networks as well. Chuck, take it away. Thank you, Lars. Our guest this segment, Edward Cunard, is the author of Unintended Consequences, Why Everything You've Been Told About the Economy is Wrong. Edward Cunard was a partner at Bain Capital from 1993 to 2007. He served as the head of Bain's New York office and led the firm's acquisitions of large industrial companies. Edward, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, Edward, I guess that firstly I'd like, as someone who is sort of on the catbird seat of the American economy, I'd like your opinion with regard to um, maybe clearing up some of the confusions and misinformation perhaps around the uh, 2008 implosion in, in the American credit system which of sure. course was the largest implosion since the Depression. General conventional wisdom holds that it had to do with deregulation, it had to do with the uh, non-regulation of uh, derivative market, and it had to do with the Fannie and Freddie uh, expansion of credit and, and, uh, and the lending to, uh, to people who, um, who should not have been borrowing money on, on their mortgages. Um, could you give us a thumbnail on, on what exactly went down leading up to the 2008 uh, uh, crisis? Yes. Well, I disagree with all of that, by the way, so I'll give you the counterintuitive uh, point of view, but I think it's one that's probably widely held by uh, academic economists. Um, uh, uh, people believe that losses on subprime loans crippled the banks. What crippled the banks, for, for starters, was a 30% drop in real estate prices. That threatened the banks with a trillion dollars of losses, which turned out to be about $300 billion in hindsight. But that triggered uh, panic withdrawals from the banking system by institutional depositors, which totaled about $1.5 trillion. So the order of magnitude was enormous. And that one, that $1.5 million withdrawals from the banking system, banks have no alternatives but to try to sell assets to fund withdrawals. Because like the citizens of Bedford Falls and It's a Wonderful Life, you quickly discover banks don't have money in the bank. They've loaned all the money out to homeowners and businesses and people like that, and they can't get the money back fast enough to fund the withdrawals. And we have to recognize that there's really two different risks that banks take. One risk they take is the risk that they'll make loans and somebody will default on the loans. They have to suffer every dollar of those losses or they'll make poor loans. But the second risk they face is that they're responsible for taking the short-term money in our economy and lending it out on a long-term basis. If they lend it out on a short-term basis, they're basically uh, funding financial speculation, which doesn't increase growth. It doesn't create jobs. They're really doing lending it to homeowners and lending it to businesses. That's really long-term. And so we always face the second risk, which is withdrawal risk. And my argument in the book is that if we hold banks responsible for withdrawal risk, we will have a very slow-growing economy with high unemployment because they have no choice but to leave that money sitting in the vault available to fund withdrawals. And if it's available to fund withdrawals, it's not available to fund your home. It's not available to fund your business. That's a big problem for the economy. We saw it in the 1930s, 10 years of lousy growth and high unemployment, and we saw it in Japan in the 1990s. Same movie, same result. We haven't done anything to fix that problem. Well, yet at the same time, too much liquidity and too much money pumped into the economy results in the very problem that you described, which was an overinflation in property values that eventually had to find its true value. And yeah, I think that's a common argument, but I would tell you this, that uh, we also know that property prices rose similarly in Europe. Um, they didn't have subprime finance. 
we know that the real estate market grew 3.7 times and has remained at those valuations. Real estate only grew two times. During that period, oil grew eight times. I would certainly agree that loose money uh, causes commodity prices to rise, so maybe the eight times is is not very relevant. But we know that real estate prices throughout the world grew similarly, if not more, than the U.S., and the U.S. real estate has fallen substantially more than the rest of the world at this point. So I've I've heard that argument, but I tell you there's a lot of uh, evidence to suggest that it's a a weak argument, not a strong argument. And yet the property values in the United States became extremely inflationary with regard to their actual value, and I've always heard that uh, part of the blame for that was the government involvement in two ways. Firstly, that the government tried to enforce in the 1990s the Community Reinvestment Act, and the Federal Reserve responded to that by lowering interest rates to practically nothing at the discount window for Fannie and Freddie, who then began to bundle these um, these new mortgages that were being required of smaller banks, and that the banks basically stopped conservative lending. I mean, they, they stopped looking at the standards of people who were coming in to, uh, to borrow for a loan, and uh, that corrupted the entire market, not just for people who didn't qualify for low-interest low loans, but also wealthier borrowers. I mean, it loosened the standards because it turned the traditional standards of bank loaning on its head. And uh, yep. the second issue, which is one that I'd like you to address, is the fact that uh, Fannie and Freddie were not responsible for their losses, given the fact that we found out in October of 2008 that both of those huge uh, governments, quasi-government agencies, had a clause in their contract which guaranteed that they would be bailed out if they had a bankruptcy. So they were behaving in a reckless manner. Uh, well, you've asked a lot there, so let me see if I can uh, remember it all. First thing I would tell you is that even though the banks appear to be making no money down loans, and they were from the homeowner's perspective, uh, I think most people don't understand that in a securitization there are what are called subordinated tranches. I'm not going to get very technical here, but in effect, investors put up homeowner down payments on behalf of the homeowners. And so from a bank's perspective or from a AAA rated perspective, it doesn't really matter whether the homeowner makes a 20% down payment or an investor makes a 20% down payment on behalf of a homeowner. Either way, you're protected from a 20% drop in real estate prices. We had a 30% drop in real estate prices, and that exposed the banks potentially to losses, and then before we ended up with a lot of withdrawals. Now, the defaults, have they're big, but they're a lot smaller than everybody worried about uh, in the crisis. So I think it would have occurred with or without uh, Fannie and Freddie. I think there's no doubt that Fannie and Freddie contributed to the problem because certainly you had, not only did you have government-subsidized conventional loans, which made it very difficult for banks to compete in the safest part of the market, but you also had Freddie and Fannie using their government guarantees to aggressively uh, go after the subprime uh, mortgage business. And um, that certainly magnified the size of the of, of subprime mortgages and no money down loans, and we can see that because you don't find them anywhere else in the world except in the United States, and they became and they grew to be a substantial portion of the market in the United States. So they certainly contributed to it. Right, right. I mean, that's kind of my point in that, yes, it was a uh, implosion in values, but the the deciding factor that made it a national and even an international problem was the government interference in it through their quasi-private agencies 
Fannie and Freddie. The other issue that's often brought up by people on the left side of the spectrum is the fact that in the 1990s, you had a rescinding of the Glass-Steagall Act, which allowed banks to get involved with highly speculative investments, and that might have something to do with what's going on right now with uh, Morgan Stanley Chase. Is that uh, a problem, would you say? Well, I probably think that's less of a problem than most people do. I think if you looked in the financial crisis, most of the problems centered in investment banks, and it didn't really get carried over as strongly into the commercial banks. And so I think that you know the, the, you would have to see a lot of damage or more damage in the commercial banks. And I think there was damage everywhere because when you have the kind of withdrawals that occurred in the banking system, they're going to, to threaten every bank and have a tendency to, to cascade. Um, but I, I think my own perspective is it's hard to make the Glass-Steagall argument. Let's look at what's happening in J.P. Morgan. Now, it's complicated. I've only heard what they've said. What they said is a little hinky, to be sure, but they make the following argument. They say, uh, we have an enormous loan portfolio. Of course, a loan portfolio exposes them to credit default risk. That's what a loan portfolio is. And why does a bank make profit? Because they take risk. They take credit default risk. They claim that they use credit default swaps to reduce – first, they use credit default swaps to reduce the amount of risk that they were, ta they, they were exposed to. So they reduce their exposure. And then they decided to increase their exposure back to where it was or to, to at least back in that direction. And that that's the place where they made the mistake and lost all the money. Uh, whether it's true or not or whether I understand it fully, I don't know. But I would say this. I think we ought to be very careful in this day and age to say that banks can only take credit default risk, they can only be on the long side of the trade, they can only make loans. I think you want them to be able to increase or decrease their exposure as market conditions changes. And if you prevent banks from doing that, well, other people are still going to continue to do that outside of the banking system, and I think you're going to end up with a very distorted capital market. I think it's dangerous. Do we want banks speculating? No. We don't need banks to speculate. We need banks to make loans. But do they need to be able to adjust their, their, their credit exposure? I think so. Other people can disagree. All right, before I introduce my co-host, my guest is Edward Kennard. The book is Unintended Consequences, Why Everything You've Been Told About the Economy is Wrong. Edward, uh, what about the actual bailouts of big banks and uh, mortgage and, uh, and insurance companies like AIG with the, uh, with the maxim that these are too big to fail and that if we don't bail them out, the economy is going to be seriously hurt? Wouldn't it have been a better idea to have allowed these massive and mammoth uh, industries and, and companies to perhaps uh, downsize a bit, maybe go through an organized bankruptcy, perhaps uh, break off into smaller units? Um, well, I, I guess I would say a couple of things. The first is that money can withdraw from a consolidated banking system or from a fragmented banking system just as easily. And so in the 1929, money withdrew from a, a fragmented banking system and the whole banking system collapsed. And so I think part of the logic behind too big to fail, and there's some, some very logical parts to it to be sure, but it's to hold banks responsible for the risks they're taking. And I agree that we have to hold banks responsible for the credit risks that they're taking. They need to make good loans and they need to suffer their losses when they make mistakes. But I think there's a second piece that gets blended in there that most people don't understand, and that is that we are, in effect, holding banks responsible for withdrawal risk. And when we do that, the money's going to sit idle. Unemployment's going to rise. Growth is going to slow. So my argument is this. Let's not kid ourselves. We're making the guarantees. 
we got to start charging the banks for the guarantees we're making. And if we do that, there's other things that we need to do as well. We need to get better visibility into the risks they're taking. We need bigger capital adequacy requirements to make sure that we're separating withdrawal risk from default risk and that they have enough of a capital cushion to suffer every dollar of default risk that they expose themselves to. But when we go over the line and start uh, holding them responsible for withdrawals, I think you get 10 years of lousy growth and high unemployment. Okay, let me welcome aboard Dave Johnson. Dave? Hi, and thanks for being here. I wish we had an hour because I've got a lot I'd like to ask you. But uh, the first thing you said just now that we should be charging the banks to cover uh, our protection of them, didn't the banks fight that really hard in the Dodd-Frank bill? Uh, they probably did. I don't. I don't. I don't know all the ins and outs of the Dodd Frank bill. I would tell you that my view of Dodd Frank is this, which is that it politicizes the process, and that's a very, very dangerous thing. So the way the reason the Fed this problem of withdrawals was understood a long time ago, and the Fed was set up so that it would not be politicized at a time when it needed to act very, very quickly, because you, we saw how much damage has been done to our economy when this withdrawal occurred. It's four and a half years later, and we're still suffering the damage from it. So it's not as though the bank, the government won't jump in and guarantee the banks. They will, and they did. Okay. The problem is if they don't do it expediently, we end up suffering 10 years of, of damage as a result. So I don't really know specifically what the banks have fought or not fought, but I do think that people really haven't put this forward as the alternative to what we do do. I'll go back to something we talked about before. What do we do now? We make implicit guarantees, and we also enforce those guarantees with implicit threats. Uh, and, and those implicit threats are, we say, Bear Stearns, you took too much risk, you're bankrupt. Lehman Brothers, you took too much risk, you're bankrupt. AIG, you took too much risk, you're bankrupt. Wachovia, bankrupt. We go on Merrill Lynch, in effect, bankrupt. We get down to Citicorp and we say, are we going to do Citicorp too? Are we going to do Goldman Sachs is actually shorting mortgages at the time? We can go all the way to the bottom of this list if we want to. And now I do agree that taking all those banks and basically bankrupting them means that we have a more consolidated system. We all know that we're not served by a more consolidated system. But the cost of enforcing implicit guarantees is also enforcing the implicit threats when the crisis comes. And that reduces the size of the banking system. In the book, I describe it as it's like your son gets in a car accident. You can't administer the punishment while he's bleeding to death at the scene of the crime, I mean, at the scene of the accident. And then afterwards, when you depend on him for your pension, okay, you can't continue to punish him after the fact because you need him to go back to work as fast as you possibly can to start earning income again. So you get in this very difficult problem when you have implicit guarantees and implicit threats. The flip side of this, of course, is moral hazard. And in the book, I talk a lot about if you're going to charge for the guarantees and make them explicit, you have to then take other steps to make sure that they, these guys don't start taking reckless risk, which, uh, which, which they could be inclined to do if you're not careful. But I think that's a, a much better problem to solve than 10 years of high unemployment. Yeah. Right, right. Well, here, let me, for the readers, this is comp or listeners, this is complicated stuff, but really a CDO is just a way to uh, – spread the risk around and uh, make it so that there's more capital available out there. It's a, it was a great thing. The uh, credit default swaps, that's another, they, they would have been another great thing because, as uh, Mr. Kennard said, the risk that the banks take on and others then is actually spread around to others. But 
here's what happened was that AIG, it's got insurance in the middle of their name there, American Insurance Group, was selling credit default swaps, but they didn't have the money to pay off their side of the bets people were making. Yeah, I'll um, give you a different – go the ahead and end up. The ratings agencies were using these credit default swaps and saying these things are rated the highest rating. Now, why hasn't anybody been held accountable for that? They weren't doing their job. They were saying this was good, not risky stuff. Turns out it was really risky, and that's fraud. Well, I'll give you a different interpretation of AIG, which I give in the book. So. Okay. AIG is doing something very similar to what the banks are doing, although doing it in a different way. So banks make loans, and they expose themselves to credit default risk, and they get paid a profit for exposing themselves to that risk. And they try to pick their loans very carefully so that they minimize the risk and make a profit. And if they don't, they're going to run into trouble. There's a second way to do that, which is you can sell credit default swap insurance or sell protection, which is what J.P. Morgan was doing, by the way. Same thing. They're selling the insurance. Okay, that actually exposes AIG to two risks. One risk is credit default risk. It's no different than a bank. And if you look at the value of AIG at the time, I think it was $250 billion, something in that range. I'm, I'm pulling it off the top of my head. Um, and I think the capital adequacy reserves that they would have had to carry for the credit default swap insurance that they issued was probably in the about $8 to $10 billion range. It might be as low as 5 So from that perspective, they were adequately covered for the capital for the credit default risk they were taking. But here's something else they were doing. When the market value of the securities that they were guaranteeing fell, they had to put up collateral equal to the difference between the price. When the withdrawals in the banking system occurred, assets fell to fire sale prices. Why? Because every bank is selling to try to fund withdrawals and there are no buyers. AIG had to put up the difference in money. So in effect, AIG is funding the withdrawals indirectly, but they're basically funding the withdrawals. Guess what? The banks can't fund the withdrawals. They all went bankrupt, and the government had to jump in and guarantee everything to stop the withdrawals from happening. The same thing, in effect, is happening to AIG because they created, if you will, a synthetic bank as opposed to a real bank because a real bank needs a skyscraper full of people and a sales force to go out and meet with small businesses to sell loans. But you can say, hey, banks, you can do all that part of the business, and I'll just be the insurer who takes the risk. No different than what a bank was taking. But they suffered the same problem that a bank suffered, which is they couldn't fund the withdrawals, even though they were funding them indirectly as opposed to directly. I don't think people understand that perspective. If somebody wants to challenge me on my take of what happened at AIG, I'd be happy to hear the uh, the differences. But you know, I think it's misunderstood myself. Um, I, have, okay. I have one last question for you. We've been talking about risk, and i got to shift this over to Bain, of course. You know, yes. <laughs> Yeah. Your portfolio at Bain, how much of your portfolio did you lose money on and how much did you make money on? And what I'm getting at is what risks were you really taking? Or were leverage buyouts just a way to drain money? Um, so let me just preface this by saying I don't speak for Bain Capital. I'm a former partner of okay. Bain Capital. I was there from 1993 to 2007. Um, okay. I would say a couple of things. The first is that capital, whether it's equity or debt, capital is capital to a certain extent. 
And so it's true that the banks are putting up debt and Bain is putting up equity. The equity is underwriting more of the risk and the debt is funding more of the investment. And every investment is a combination of the funding portion of it and the risk underwriting portion of it. So the Bain equity is underwriting the risk and the banks are, are funding the investments. Uh, I don't know... Uh, I, I don't know the exact numbers for the Bain portfolio. We ended up making a lot more money on our portfolio than we ever lost by a wide margin. The, the funds were very, very successful, probably in the order of three to five times, depending on the uh, which years we're talking about. Uh, but let's look at, for example, at the, the steel mill, where you see the commercial that's being run on the on the steel mill. That, those we made two steel investments in 1993. One of them was in a, a, a a steel company that we built from the ground up, literally in a green field. We built that steel mill to be competitive in the world markets, and it's the, I don't know, fifth, sixth, or seventh largest U.S. steel company today. It has about $6 billion in revenue and 6,000 employees. The other plant, the one that you hear about in the commercial, was a plant that was slated for closure. I think it was part of the old Armco uh, operations, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. It was slated for closure. We bought it. We invested $100 million in it, and we worked for six years trying to turn it around, and we were never able to make it competitive. And that's at a time when the U.S. lost 50% of its steel industry. So we worked incredibly hard trying to make that successful, and other people have come behind us and tried to make it successful, and they have not been very successful with it either. I, 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 don't, even, I don't know whether it's open or closed today, but it certainly has many, many fewer. If it's open, it has, you know, I don't know, much, much, it's very much shrunk. And if you look did, at other did integrated, did we lose money? Did we lose we, money? We probably, did you lose money, or did you make money off of it? I think and we. What I'm getting at is, were you really taking a risk? Well, are we really taking a risk? Uh, I think so. Yes. I mean, keep in mind what's what's the most valuable thing to Bain, right? It's long-term business. It's long-term reputation. It's ability to borrow money. It's ability to raise money from equity holders. So far more valuable to us than any one investment. And so how do we be successful? The idea that we can you know, strip assets out of a company, cut costs, walk away, and make money is, is almost laughable. It's cartoonish. Okay, you wouldn't be in business very long if that was your business model. First of all, no lender would ever lend you money. Try going to a bank, see if they'll lend you enough money to buy a couple hundred million dollar company. You have to have a reputation, and you have to have a reputation that you're going to be around for a long time working very hard to make sure that the lenders get their money back. And the same thing's true on the equity side. And I think what people forget here, okay, is they say, oh, all Bain was doing was working for the investors. All managers are doing is working for the investors. Okay, but we all know what it really takes for a business to be successful. You're working for your customers. And if you don't make your customers happy in the long run, there's no way somebody's going to come in behind you and look at a company and look out five years into the future and say, if they don't see a brighter future for that company than, um, than when you bought it in the first place, there is really no way that you're going to make a profit. Now, it's true in a leverage buyout, we can lose all our equity. I don't know exactly what happened in the steel mill. I assume we didn't, you know, we certainly didn't make the kind of return or get the amount of money back that we thought we could to, to make our business a successful business in the long run. I'm talking about the Bain Capital business. Okay, but, but what's the most amount of money we can lose? I suppose the most amount we could lose is all the equity we put up plus some damage to our business reputation that we're not thoughtful in picking investments and, and running companies. 
So when I say we lost money, it's like... If I could just briefly interrupt here, our guest is Edward Kennard. The book is Unintended Consequences. You're listening to uh, Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick at Cyberstation USA Radio Network. Dave? What I'm getting at is you made yourself and your partners a lot of money, but there's no sign that you really had the kind of risk at stake. You... It wasn't, you know, a Microsoft and then, you know, or an Apple and then 20 years later it's worth 600 bucks a share. You made a lot of money, but you weren't losing money on these investments. Now, that's fine. Yes, you're really smart. But the amount of money you guys end up with when we have, like, cities like Detroit that are just suffering, you know, because you guys paid low taxes, schools, roads, you know, we can't even finance our infrastructure anymore. I'm, I, is the return you guys get? in accordance with what you guys are doing that's that's what i want to hear yeah. i I, I can't i can't so i can't speak i can't speak to specific investments because i'm under a confidentiality agreement but if we put up 100 million dollars we can easily lose our 100 million dollars if that's the question you're asking and do we lose that at times yes it's far and few between because we're prudent at investments and we're very good managers. That's why we've been successful in the business. But when we put $100 million into a business, can we lose $100 million? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Unequivocally, yes. So I don't. I'm, I guess I'm scratching my head on the question. Is it can we put in $100 million and we're guaranteed we're going to get our $100 million back? Not, no. Not even close. We put up a that's, – it's like making a – an LBO is almost identical – to buying a home. You're making a 20 or a 30% down payment. Can you lose your down payment? You bet you can. All that has to happen is real estate prices go down 20% or uh, the neighborhood around your house changes or somebody builds some ugly house next to you or you get a fire and your house burns down, whatever the case may be. Can you lose your down payment? You bet you can. We lost our down payment. Sure we did. Do we lose it very often? No. We're very careful, prudent managers. We're in the business of not losing our money because if we lose it very often, we won't be in business very long. Let me just, uh, first of all, interject here, uh, Edward. Bain Capital, which is headquartered here in Boston, it has a very, very good reputation among both, uh, you know, the, certainly the Boston Globe and and, uh, and the state as a, as a pretty conservative investor and uh, as, as a company that's actually – uh, created such companies as Staples, which hires tens of thousands of people. But, of course, they've made mistakes. I mean, that's part of risk. So my question is, how can, if at all, can government play a role in terms of um, reducing risk or protecting investors to some degree within the context that it's understood that risk is part of uh, life, I mean, it's part of the game? Um, I mean, I... I... I'm scratching my head here. I would say no. Can you can you legislate away risk? Boy, it sure would be great if we could because we no, but, we, but we could and we should. But well, wait a minute. At the same time, there there are situations that exist where the government does have certain standards that protect investors who can't possibly understand the intricacies of their investments. A good example is the economy of Germany. That uh, the government has very high standards of uh, ensuring that uh, companies, particularly companies that offer stock on the public on a stock exchange or companies that seek investment from from regular investors that they have to meet certain standards and that insurance companies have to meet certain standards with regard to a, a ratio of equity that before they can start insuring things so that you don't have a situation like AIG yeah I would say those those regulations I, I think those regulations are here in the United States and with or without those regulations 
Okay, business is a lot more thoughtful than I think the public gives it credit for. So if you go into a bank and say, hey, I've got some reckless, crazy idea. How would you like to lend me $200 billion? They laugh at you and send you on your way. Why? Because they care a lot about getting their invest their, their depositors' money back. Have they? Do they make mistakes? Sure, they make mistakes. But I think you'll find they have skyscrapers full of people with their sleeves rolled up trying to figure out, is this a good risk or is it a bad risk? So are the regulations that underpin these things? Yes, there are regulations and we need regulations. I don't think anybody would argue with that. You know, the, the banking industry is a risky business because it buys, it uses short-term money to make long-term loans, and, and that's got the problems that we talked about earlier. But you, who are we borrowing money from? Fidelity, uh, pension funds, uh, banks. Well, what are those guys doing? I mean, those are made up of small, mostly small investors, retired people, people who have put money away in an investment account and who can't possibly understand the intricacy of those investments or even know that those their money is being invested. In, in yeah, although, yes, although there is, and that's why they hire Fidelity in a skyscraper full of really smart, thoughtful people to represent their interests. And those right, people aren't sleeping on the job. They're, they're working hard to make sure that they are taking the appropriate amounts of risk. Edward Kennard's our guest, Unintended Consequences, Why Everybody's What, everyone's Everything You've Been Told About the Economy is Wrong. Edward, we were talking about banking, and I, you know, maybe this might seem a little bit off the track, but um, is the entire institution of fractional reserve banking, which allows banks to create money literally by moving a few dots on a computer screen, uh, is that really a, a solid approach to how we issue currency in this country? Would it not be a more practical approach to have Congress simply issue currency directly from the Treasury and to do so based upon uh, perhaps a committee that takes a look at the economy itself and various indices that indicate how much money is needed at a given time uh, rather than having banks create currency, not to mention the Federal Reserve? Uh, this is a very – I'd say be quick, my quick answer is no. I think the current system is much more logical than that. It's a very, very complicated question. I, I kind of scratch my head as to where to begin, and I, but I would say this. You, you Think of the simple corn economy, and this will sound like it's not making sense for a second, but bear with me. Think of a simple corn economy. You can eat the corn. You can plant the corn eating its consumption, planning its investment, and you can hoard the corn. You can build big vaults and lock up the corn. The problem you always have, especially in a recession, is that people say, I want my corn on demand anytime I want it. You say, okay, well, then I have to build a big vault, I'll lock it up, and I'll hold it there. And when you come for your corn, I'll have your corn waiting for you. We learned a long time ago that if we do that, we'll get a very slow-growing, smaller economy with much higher unemployment. We got to get the corn out of the vaults and get it to be either eaten or planted. But if you leave it in the vault, you got a big problem, which is exactly what's causing our problem today. So the whole purpose of fractional banking the system, okay, is that you have to get that corn out of the vault. You have to keep a little bit in the vault to be sure because you have people coming and going to the banks every day to get their money. So you want to be protected in a certain sense, and you want to make sure that if people make loans loan out that corn, and then they run into trouble like a 20% drop in real estate prices that they're going to be protected from, from it. So that's why you have 20% down payments. Um, but I think the problem with the, with the system that the alternative system that you're describing is that it really only works by having a vault that locks up the corn. 
And so what what happens is that when you take the corn out of the vault and you go over to some other bank and some other bank and some other bank, you do get this multiplier, not fiscal multipliers, but monetary multiplier effect. But I think what you really discover is at the end of the day, uh, there's there's only the production that we produce every year. And we really can only do three things with that, no matter how much money we may print or not print or pretend that we have or don't have. And that is we can either eat it, we can plant it, or we can hoard it. But one thing we can't do, okay, is the laws of physics, I mean, the laws of finance do not violate the laws of physics. We can't teleport stuff back to the future and eat it today. Okay, yes, we can borrow some money from the Chinese, and that's a little bit complicated. But, you know, leaving that piece of it aside and just talking about what it is that's happening inside of our economy. Okay, there's no magic occurring in our economy. The fact that they might end up with more deposits or less deposit, more, more currency or less currency because of this system. I think what you'd find is that prices are actually pretty stable. So if you put, print twice as much money, prices should just rise twice as much. Production has to stay the same because printing money doesn't increase production. If it did, we ought to print a no, lot more money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's inflationary. But at the same time, the situation you're describing is one where there's not enough money in an economy, so the economy uh, stagnates. But the alternative has been this sort of boom and bust cycle that's been in place, I think, probably since uh, who knows how long, the past hundred or so years. And and I guess the question is, is there not, in, in and I know this gets into an issue of the science of money, which I'm not claiming to know about, but could there not be a means by which our government could know how much currency to issue in a given year in such a way that um, money could be debt-free, that it could be an investment and savings instrument as opposed to a debt instrument, and that it could be uh, stimulative enough so that uh, the government could expand in various areas such as infrastructure development and all of the other things that we want without being inflationary? Uh, if you, if somebody's able to crack the code on that, you know, there's a lot of uh, central banks around the world which would love to do precisely that. I think they have come to the conclusion that this is the best. This is the best. This is the best alternative, I, I believe. Um, the one man's view, but uh, believe me, I've heard the alternative views on these. Uh, I kind of scratch my head on them because I think. When you talk about booms and busts, it's true that if you take the corn out of the vault and you loan it for eating or planting, okay, every now and then people are going to panic and they're going to run to the bank to withdraw their money and the corn's not going to be there, okay? And so, right. yeah, do we end up with a bigger economy that's a little less stable? Yes, it's bigger, but it's faster growing and it has high unemployment. So I always think, yeah, can we big, big build vaults and lock up the corn and have things be more stable? It, but it's a little bit like saying let's summer, let's suffer permanent recession, so that we don't, so that we can avoid intermittent recession. It's like uh, I'm not sure that's the optimal strategy. Right. One no, guy's look, view. But I do appreciate that your book does get into some of these issues that are not commonly discussed in this day and age. Should be discussed, used to be discussed in past in the past. Uh, one of my complaints about economic issues is that the jargon has become so complicated that it's out of reach for average, average people to even yes. begin to understand it. And I think that's a mistake. I think it, it, once you per, pierce the veil of it, so to speak, it's actually a very interesting subject. And your book goes a long way toward clarifying economic matters. And I appreciate that. I'd like to have you on again sometime. Uh, our guest is Edward Cunard. The book is Unintended Consequences. Um, how do you think uh, things are going for your former partner, Mitt Romney? 
Uh, I'm very optimistic. I believe that uh, if Obama doesn't get the economy growing, and I don't believe that the policies that he's undertaking are going to get the economy growing, that uh, I think he's going to lose, and I think he'll deserve to lose as a result of that. So I feel I feel optimistic about uh, about Mitt's prospects, and I I believe if if the debate's going to come down to did the Obama administration get the economy to grow as fast as it could versus is Mitt qualified to be president? I think Mitt can win that because I think most people in the middle can't speak for people on the on the extremes, but I think most people in the middle look at Mitt and they say he would be a fine president. You might not yeah, like, so you know, they, 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 go ahead. Am I hearing you right? Are you calling for the Republicans to stop filibustering everything? Did I just hear that? Well, they'll stop filibustering if they take a majority in both houses of Congress and presidency. There won't be need for filibustering. <laughs> Dave, all right. Anyway, Edward, your book is available at all major bookstores. And uh, I appreciate you joining me. Thank yep. you for having me. Thank you. My, my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Alrighty. Dave, that pretty much wraps things up for today. You'll be back next week at the usual time. I want to thank you for, yep. for very ably co-hosting with me this afternoon. And thanks for having me. uh, And and onward and upward, as they say. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Dave Johnson filling in today. Check out our website, fairnessradio.com. Check out our sponsor, Barton Publishing. And uh, stay tuned on CyberStation USA for Mike Siegel. You're listening to CyberStation USA Radio Network, Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Have a good evening, everybody.